Well, hello, everybody. Uh, a few months ago, I was asked to go out to Chicago to go speak to about 3,500 people at Olivet Nazarene University. And prior to that, I spoke at the annual prayer breakfast there outside of Chicago. Uh, it was just an incredible group. And as I did that, I was sitting next to this amazing man with one of the most incredible stories I've heard, Greg Yates. Greg, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, John. It's great to be here. Greg, you and I met through a mutual friend, Albert DePavine, who is a man with an amazing story himself. But just a little background on Greg, guys, was just an incredibly successful businessman in the Chicago area, 35 years, uh, like this eight-figure net worth. And uh, talk about somebody that's experienced some of the most extreme successes as well as failure in going to prison. So we're going to be kind of diving into all this stuff. You wrote a book called Broken, which kind of became kind of your crusade, your passion for helping Christian leaders. And you're really focused on this kind of this concept of broken to breakthrough. And you also wrote a book about the role Albert played in your life also, Greg, called A Journey of Significance. So, I mean, you've just been taking what has happened, what you've gone through, what you've learned, and just pouring it out for other people. And here's what I'd like to do, just for people to just get a full breath of really your testimony, is maybe just kind of start at the beginning and just walk us through kind of growing up and, and things that were going on, and we're going to dive into some of the peaks and valleys of what you've walked through. Thanks, John, man. I'll tell you, I always wanted people to thrive and to hear my success stories, right? <laughs> Don't we all face that? I wanted people to identify with, you know, owning 14 businesses and a couple hundred pieces of property and uh, employing nearly a thousand people. I wanted people to identify with that. And I looked for validation there for so long. And then to find out that people actually get more out of my life through my failures, <laughs> it's pretty humbling. And yet it's exactly the way God's chosen to work in my life. You ask about the chronological sequence. You know, I grew up in a Christian home, John. I mean, the seed that was planted in my life, just amazing. I mean, I have some people like to go back, you know, and blame their parents or their upbringing uh, for things that happened in their life. Yeah, I don't have that. I've got a storybook childhood. I uh, was uh, valedictorian in my graduating class in high school. I mean, I had every bit of momentum going for me that you could ever have. But guess what? I interpreted that as why God loved me, right? I interpreted that as the value that I had. And I didn't realize till decades later how terrified I was to think that I really had no value unless I was able to perform. And that's been part of my, that's been the really the theme of the journey that I've been on as I've figured out that it's only through this process of realizing our brokenness that we're able to actually identify what God's highest created purpose is for our life. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes total sense. So that drive to do what you did, to start 14 companies, to keep, you know, reaching that next big milestone, was that all just coming from, you know, that identity? Like I've, okay, I've gotten this achievement for people to still love me, like me, appreciate me. I have to do more. So it was this entire like works-based mentality that was driving you. Is that fair? Yeah, that's dead on. You know, the unfortunate part is I didn't realize it. Mm. Right. I didn't realize that's what was happening. I literally felt that I'd been given this mission 
to achieve and that that was almost my curse, right? That I, I needed to be the guy who was bulletproof. I needed to be the guy who was literally completely isolated in order to accomplish the things that I felt God had given me to accomplish. I had this sort of twisted perspective of what God needed from me. And even though I would have never said works-based, right? I mean, we all know we're saved by grace. I honestly never understood what grace meant until I was in prison. Never Mm. understood it. It never made sense to me. So, you know, when you go back to that time when you're really kind of driving and achieving, what was the your relationship with God at that time? And the reason I'm asking is I know that, you know, when I personally became a new believer in my late 20s after I got out of the Navy, Greg, and I got into business and I had my first business success and I felt like I was like, I couldn't wait to go to church. God was my first love. And as I started doing better in business and making more money and then getting new titles and being on boards, if God is my true north, I slowly just kind of drifting away, right? And it was this slow thing that over time, all of a sudden, I'm way over in the weeds, and I didn't even know it. And now I'm com- I was completely operating from you know driving this uh, validation of this identity that I'd allowed to be given to me from the world, and I didn't realize how big the gap was. Even though I went to church, everybody knew me as a Christian. But just how I operated inside, there was a massive gap between what I did and why I did it. Does that make sense? Oh, John, that is the thing we share as Christian leaders, right? Especially as Christian business people. I think that's the identity that we think is unique to us, right? We believe that we've like found this space that we're alone in, and we don't realize that there are people all around us who are in that same situation, who have found themselves wearing the masks. You know, we all know what that schema is, right? I mean, they're wearing the masks, they're running the same loops over and over. That's where I was. I felt that I had made decisions to put myself in this tremendous cycle of momentum, and that my destiny, my fate, if you will, was simply to be that mechanism out there. I didn't think I was going to be the guy who was blessed to have intimacy with God. I didn't think I was the guy who was blessed to have friendships, to have relationships that were deep and meaningful because I couldn't trust any of those. And yeah, everything you said is just so spot on. I didn't realize that I had moved farther and farther away from that level of intimacy. I really believe that God was depending on me, not the other way around. Oh, (laughs) well, you know, you said something interesting. You said that you couldn't trust any of those relationships. So what was going on at that place when you felt like you couldn't trust? Well, John, when everything you're doing has an impact on everyone else, right? Every decision you make, every or at least you believe that's true, right? It right. doesn't have anything to do with actual truth. But when you believe that the decisions you're making impact other people so greatly, and when the people you're spending most of your time with are dependent on your decision-making, on your pleasure, if you will, your grace, because most of them work for you. I mean, I'm a guy who never held another job. I was an entrepreneur from the time I was young. I always worked for myself, and I was always employing lots of people. And so I always suspected 
those relationships. I always felt, well, of course, the church and of course, you know, the people who are uh, coming and seeing me looking for donations, of course, the people that are in my employ, you know, they all are going to be my friends because they want something from me. And I almost believed, I wouldn't have said it out loud, but I almost believed that God was in that boat too, right? That he needed something from me and that's why he loved me because I could perform. I could understand why God loved me. And again, like you said, you don't realize it at the time, but that's literally a sense of obsessive need for validation that I was dealing with. See, I had reached retirement when I was 37 years old, I sold two businesses. I retired for a couple of years. I didn't need to work. What I needed was validation. I needed to be in a position where I felt like I had value. And all of that just molded itself, twisted itself into what drove me ultimately to self-destructive behavior. Yeah. So when you were 37, taking a couple of years to chill, figure out what's next, um, probably, you know, thinking like, man, I'm king of the world right now. And then you move into, hey, let's start something again new. How would you have described your identity during that period of time? During the period of time when I was not leading, you know, not in business, I was lost. Mm. I was constantly looking for distraction in not the most healthy ways. I was in a situation where I'd never been before. I'd never been lacking demand. You know, the phone wasn't ringing. People didn't need me. People didn't depend on me to make decisions during that time. And to be honest, I didn't know who I was. I felt that in that time frame, I literally asked myself the question, is this it? Mm. I mean, is this it? Everything that I'm capable of was just about making X millions of dollars are just about getting independent for my time. That's all there was. And it was really a time of despair for me after about the first six months. I didn't literally have an identity that I could deal with. So in that place, probably a pretty lonely place, I'm guessing also. I think there's a lot of leaders. You know, maybe you could speak to this because I think there's a lot of leaders out there right now, small businesses, big businesses, even, you know, people going to work listen to this right now, man, they just feel lonely, right? And I think a lot of it's because the identity that can relate yeah. to some of the things that you're saying. Oh, my. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, uh, you know, the guy thing, especially, right? I mean, how do we identify any value at all is how we answer that question. What do you do? And, and of course, you know, some great stories about that after I got out of prison, you know, some interesting uh, scenarios where people ask me, uh, what do you do, Greg, when I was literally, you know, living off my wife and had just gotten out of prison? You know, pretty hard questions from an identity perspective. But I think isolation is absolutely of the enemy. Mm. I don't think it's just a guy thing. I think women handle it differently. But the experience I have is as a leader, the isolation was so loud. And I needed that noise, John. I needed to have things going on. I needed demand. I needed busyness. I needed all of these things in order to keep me from thinking through my life the way I was forced to think through it when I was in prison and the voices in my head had to be 
dealt with. And yes, isolation is a symptom, but it's also one of the most painful realities that any leader in particular is going to face. And so during that period of time, my guess would be is that there's probably people in your life, peers, investors, you know, that were trying to sow into your life, right? Trying to actually, you know, you were in a relationship with some people, you know, what did you do when people would try to give you some counsel or some advice or try to build relationships with you? What was your reaction? Oh, my. Uh, <laughs> Getting you know, real here. Getting oh, real, Greg. Oh, this is the bloody part. Uh, one of my, <laughs> my best friend, John Nimmo, incredible friend, but there were a few years when literally I wouldn't answer his calls. I, I wouldn't listen to him. He literally showed up at my office one day, you know, when I was in the fist fight of my legal battles, he showed up at my office one day because I wouldn't answer his call. I wouldn't talk to him on the phone. And he just literally wanted to know how I was doing and ask me questions that I did not want to answer. I mean, I did not want to talk about it. In fact, I was so unapproachable that that's one of the books I really want to write is how to talk to people and deal with people that are in chaos. You know, what can we do? What should we expect? What should we go into those conversations with the knowledge of and believing? And I really want to write that book because I think it's a disaster as it relates to us knowing what to say, when to say it, especially as believers, especially as body of Christ. Because to be honest with you, whole nother conversation, but the church was not Really, they didn't know what to do with me, John, during this time, and it was not a positive interaction. Uh, the business world was much more supportive to me during crisis than the church was. But yes, I had some people, Albert Deepavine, oh my goodness, Albert showed up at my office periodically to remind me, Greg, God has you right where he wants you. Seriously? That's what you say to somebody who's facing indictment, who's facing like, you know, loss of 30 to 50 million dollars. I mean, that's what you say to him. God's got you right where he wants you. That became those willingness of those men to speak into my life, even though at the time you could have never evidenced that I was willing to receive a word of it. Their willingness to speak that seed into my life gave me beginnings of being grafted back into the vine, if you will, mm. uh, to be able to become a true branch bearing fruit one more time in the way that God intended. I guess I've come to the place where I've almost had to believe that, you know, uh, God literally had to bring me here to accomplish what his purpose was for my life. And of course, that's a beliefs conversation that I love to have too. Yeah. So uh, walk us up through it. Like, you know, you've mentioned the indictment a few times, right? So Business is rocking. You're grinding it out. You're working crazy hours. You're running these companies. What happened? <laughs> well, as we know, uh, most of us, if you've been involved in real estate, 2008, 2009 happened. We were in the middle of a golf course development and other real estate developments. We were the only things we were really financing were projects like that. And everybody thought real estate was golden, right? We moved through that, made a lot of money in real estate, construction and development. And, you know, we had businesses in everything from flooring and concrete to, you know, to the IT and infrastructure side of things. I mean, we were sitting at a lot of seats at the table in these developments. And we reached a point where suddenly uh, banks were unwilling to fulfill their obligations, even as it related to real estate loans and development loans that were already in place. And uh, it became where banks were no longer allowed to loan into those projects. 
And talking with my bank, I ultimately borrowed against another project to fulfill obligations in a development that could no longer was a golf course development that could no longer be funded. And about three years later, they came back and told me that was bank fraud. That you can't, you know, I borrowed against one project. I pull every developer. I'm confident anybody who's a developer who would be listening to this says, wait a minute, I've done that. And we've all done it until it becomes a problem. And the uh, bank I was dealing with ultimately failed, not due to my actions necessarily, but once that occurred, it became a federal issue, and you know they were looking for people, the big bad rich guys who were uh, who were to blame, and that's what happened to me. I ultimately misdirected or redirected funds from one project into another project to save the day, and even though that worked temporarily, about three years later, I ended up indicted for bank fraud. You know, I can feel kind of the energy in your voice as you say that. I can feel almost kind of the pain, stress, anxieties, you almost kind of maybe relive that moment. What was, man, it's hard to relate to, but as you're sitting there at home, the night that the indictment comes down, you know, what are you thinking? In July, 2011, I was in my office, you know, beautiful facility, um, 22,000 square foot, beautiful office space, about 45 of our own people working just in that facility. And I looked out the window and you know, about 13 police cars came flying into the space. For real? Guys started running into the building with their guns out. Are you serious? I'm serious. I'm dead serious. Telling everybody to back away from their computers, on and on. I walked up the hall from my little office suite, and I just thought somebody had done something really bad, you know, and <laughs> they were there to get them. I didn't, I didn't have any idea they were there for me. So you're walking and, out of your office like, what's going on? Yeah, I said, hey, what can we do for you guys? And they said, you know, they redirected me back to my conference room and basically they imped, they took everything off everybody's desks. They wheeled filing cap boxes and boxes of materials out of there. I had no idea what they were looking for. And if we had not owned an IT business that we could literally back up our entire servers and everything, they would have taken all our computers and servers and everything with them. We still stayed in business. It was an amazing thing. But you know, when you've been raided, so to speak, Let's just say consumer confidence drops dramatically. (laughs) And that was really an interesting process. I love to spend time talking about how the government knows how to do those things. And, And for about a year, they convinced me that I wasn't really the target of their investigation. And, of course, I told them, I said, hey, listen, here's exactly what happened. Once I found out what they were looking for, this is exactly what happened. If it's wrong, it's wrong. What do we need to do about it? There was no interest in just, you know, remedy. They were interested in more than that. They convinced me that they were uh, really looking into the bank, not me. But then about a year went by and I'm literally working at the office and I get a call from the newspaper asking me my reaction to the fact that I was just indicted. And I didn't even know I was indicted until the newspaper reporter called me to ask me. Pretty difficult when you've been, you know, front page news for years about good things you're doing and charity you're doing and businesses you're building and property you're renovating. And then all of a sudden your front page news about indictment, about scandal. And of course, you can imagine how the media loves those type of situations. You know, you got the local guy who's employing all these people and yep, he's a criminal. 
<laughs> oh my goodness, it was a heyday. So let me guess, all those people that you donated to and worked with and came up to you and said, hey man, I just, you must be going through something hard, how can I help? <laughs> well, some did, I gotta say. <laughs> I'll be honest with you, what happened was I was on multiple boards at that time and they all, of course, asked me to resign. By the way, you are actually guilty until proven innocent. I have to differ with the theory there. Yeah, I think we've seen that play out in modern times when it's a federal investigation. Oh, yeah. That is their go-to. Yeah. It's you have to prove your innocence versus yeah, them and, proving your guilt. And you often can't because you know, a sequence of things occurs when you get indicted especially or even an investigation is known about. Number one, all the banks want to call all their loans. No matter, You don't have to be in default. That's fine print. They want to call their loans. They want you to cough up the money. All of your customers are like, well, you know, let's wait and see how this plays out. And your key employees are saying, I better get my resume put together. Mm -hmm. That's what happens. And before long, you have no ability to even pay for your attorneys. And that's why, you know, like 99% of all cases like this don't even go to trial because, number one, you can't afford to go to trial. Yeah, it's, that's another whole part of the story. But you're asking about the people and how they responded. You know, I'm a vocalist. You know, I sing. I was part of a lot of things like that in the church. And uh, I was asked, and this is not, you know, people are people, right? I have no, you know, I know how things work. I understand this, but I was asked, you know, not to sing anymore, not to be on the platform, not to be, you know, present in any kind of leadership role. I was asked to resign from all these boards. And this is, you know, several years before anything came to conclusion. This is the guilty until proven innocent. But the people who came out of the woodwork to support me were people that I had done business with in the past. Even if we had been rivals, I had men who came to me, who called me, asked me to go to coffee, who would say things to me like, listen, we've done business with you. We know who you are. Keep your head up. Tell us what we can do to support you. You know, they encouraged me in ways that were so humbling because when you're in that role, I was just used to being bulletproof. I didn't need anybody. And suddenly I don't even know who I am anymore. I didn't even know what to do. I'd lost my identity. I was like it was like that out of body experience, you know, like you've just jet lagged from uh, Japan and you know you feel like your head is off center and you don't even know what's going on. That's the way I felt for months. I just didn't even know how to breathe. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know how to identify with people. I walk into church, you know, it felt like I was stepping into a microwave because it felt like every eye was on me and that everything was just so much tension and pressure. I couldn't stand, you know, the feeling. I couldn't stand to be anywhere. I And I just had completely, you know, lost that confidence that I'd never known anything but being confident. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. Have you ever read a classic book and then reread it months or years later? John and I do this with How to Win Friends and Influence People. I know many people that do this with Five Levels of Leadership by John Maxwell and many others. Well, Blinkist allows you to reread the key thoughts and insights of these books, as well as 2,500 more, most in less than 15 minutes. John and I both signed up for Blinkist last year, and we are big fans. I recently reread the Blinkist summary for How to Win Friends 
once a night for a few consecutive nights right before bed just to get those concepts in my conscious and subconscious minds. The app says that that one's a 21 minute read, but I got it done in around 15 minutes. I also re-reviewed other books like The Lean Startup, Play Bigger, Launched by Jeff Walker, The War of Art, many, many more. Read via their mobile app, which is beautifully designed, or at the website, or export to your Kindle. You can even listen to the audio versions on the go or while you read along. Here's the best part. You can try Blinkist for a free seven-day trial. Embedded in the summary of this MP3 is our affiliate link, which you can access at eternalleadership.com blink. That's eternalleadership.com blink. And if you subscribe by using that link we provide, it's an easy way to help support the work that John, Sandra, Phidias, Daisy, and myself are doing to keep this show going for you. We only want to promote products and services that we personally use and are fans of, and this is one of them. Check out that affiliate link, eternalleadership.com slash blink to learn more. Thanks. So that's kind of that part of the journey. Then it goes to trial. I'm guessing that that was pretty challenging. But uh, talk about the end of the trial and what happened next, because you're in this complete kind of crisis of identity, right? Some of the people close to you have asked you to step away. That must have been very hard. You have some other people that are coming in, sewing into your life, guys like Albert saying, you know, it's going to work out. God's got a plan right in the middle of the storm. So, you know, think about other people right now that are like like right in the middle of this crisis of who they are, what they're doing. Their life has just been turned upside down. How did you just step through that? There were moments, you know, I have a lot of highlights, especially in my book, where I really go through and talk about the brutality of the process and a lot of journaling that I did during that time that I share in there. It's very intimate, very brutal, very vulnerable to me. During that time, of course, you get clear, right? You're in the foxhole. You get clear all of a sudden, and yet the process still continues. We want God, you know, to just fix things. We're like, got it. I hear the message. Would you just make this go away? Well, that never happened. I didn't go to trial because after about three years and you can't pay your bills and you can't pay your attorneys, I began to ask, what do I have to do to make this go away? Mm -hmm. I ended up, you know, making a deal to make it all go away. And that's what they wanted in the first place. And so now I'm getting sentenced. I went, the entire sentencing is in my book as well. You know, I had tried to be, treat all these guys with respect even when you're totally frustrated, you know, I realized that I'm not going to let these situations impact who I am. I'm going to be who I was created to be the best I can. And uh, at, the tr- at the sentencing, I was given an opportunity to speak. And I thought I spoke for three or four minutes, and it turns out it was like 25 minutes. And I just let – I really felt like the Holy Spirit was all over that place, John. I mean, I know – that at that moment, my connection to God was base. You know, it was at that, I couldn't survive. I couldn't even take a breath. I couldn't move forward if I didn't just let the Holy Spirit saturate me. And and I don't think I'd ever felt that way before. And I talked to that judge and I talked to the prosecutors and I shared my heart. I shared my faith. I shared what I believed was true about my life in that I'm not dead. You know, I'm not dead. 
I've failed. My parents were there, John. You can't even imagine this. My parents were in the courtroom. Mm. I had no victims. There were no victims to what had gone on. So it was really just supporters that were there. And I told the judge, I said, you know, I can't go back. I didn't make that decision with the forethought that should have been made. I made it in a rush and it seemed like the thing to do at the time. And I certainly can't go back, but I know this. My wife, Vicki, told me this during the heat of all this, her wisdom. She said, Greg, it could be worse. You're not dead. And I realized in that moment that my opportunity was still ahead of me. You see, I had to take beliefs that I had. And even though I couldn't believe what I needed to believe yet, I had to begin walking towards this belief that I tried to speak out loud that day. And it was that no matter where I am today, God is still able to fulfill what he has in mind for my life. His purpose, his plan is still greater than I am stupid, okay? Mm -hmm. And I had to point at that belief, even though I didn't have that belief yet. I had to point at that belief. And through this entire journey, this process, no matter how painful it was, hey, even after I got home, it wasn't like that process was over. I still had to find what this next level of belief was for my life so that I could become the man I was created to be. And I don't want anybody to go through that, John. In fact, part of the counseling that I do and coaching that I do with with men in business is to help them have a clear vision of the decisions they're really making and what's driving those decisions. Because I know that we all are broken at some level. Something's not working the way it should. We Parts of our lives maybe are what the issue is. You know, maybe it's just a piece of our life that's not functioning as it was intended. But there are things that will drive us to catastrophic brokenness if we don't accept, you know, an intentional realization of our brokenness. And my desire, of course, is that nobody would go through what I went through. And yet at the same time, the only way that's possible is for us to talk about it out loud, to identify with the diseases and the frailties that we are covering up as businessmen because we don't want to be weak. We don't want anybody to see us as weak. And I'm just here to tell you that as strong as I felt like I was, I was like a little baby boy when it came to being how vulnerable I was about my validation. By the way, how long was your sentence term? For everybody to hear. I spent a year and a day. A year and a day was my judgment in prison. I ended up being there about 10 months. Okay, so 10 months. You find yourself in this 10 by 10 foot prison cell yep. with a really sporty, probably Gucci jumpsuit. All right. <laughs> and you're sharing the cell with four other people. And here's my real question. You talked about from brokenness to breakthrough. You had a choice to make. You go from brokenness to catastrophic brokenness, like you mentioned, or you make a choice to go from brokenness and take that next small step toward breakthrough. So in that moment, when you're almost kind of standing at, at this like uh, decision point, this why in the road, what is the reason that you moved the direction that you did, and how did you do that? You know, there was a pivotal moment for me, John, and it comes kind of in a story, I guess, the um, when you're in prison, everybody gets a job, right? And no matter who you were when you come, when you come in, you're, you're really nobody now. And I, I get a job. They appointed me as an outside driver. 
I got to drive guys to doctor's appointments and to leave. I got to drive them to bus station, train stations to go home. And and that was a kind of a coveted job in one way, but in other ways it wasn't because every time you return to the prison, you get strip searched and drug tested and it's pretty humbling. It's like you're resurrendering every time you come back. Okay. But I got that job. It was a high paying job, by the way. It was like one of the highest paying jobs in the joint. It was like $35 a month that I got paid. And the guys who were cleaning the floors were getting like $5 a month. So, hey, clearly I was making a lot of money. (laughs) (laughs) And I was driving a gentleman. He was actually a Native American guy to the bus station one day. And this was a pivotal point to answer your question. I was driving this guy to the bus station about a 20 minute trip and he was had been in prison for 14 years he was expressing to me you know like almost hyperventilating about his fear about he was afraid he was going to go home and fail he was afraid that he was not going to be able to provide for his family he was afraid that they would reject him that his daughter he hadn't seen would you know would not love him and he was just talking i'm gonna try to get through this without crying and um He got silent, and suddenly I found myself realizing that God was in the car with us, and I thought, you don't just talk to guys, right? I mean, you don't just talk to guys in prison, and you don't touch them, okay? You don't touch anybody, and I found myself saying to this guy, do you believe in God? Silence. I think I'm on the edge here, you know? This this is like, and he says, yes, I do, and I said, Do you believe that it's possible God could go before you and be ready to help you in these situations? Silence. I mean, like a minute. I'm thinking all the worst thoughts. You know, this guy thinks I'm crazy. He's he's not going to respond to this. And he said just one word. He said, yes. It was silent for about another five to ten minutes till we got to the bus station. We pulled in there. He went to grab his bag and open the door to that little truck. And I said to him, would you mind if I prayed for you? He said, okay. I said, would you mind if I touched you? He said, okay. I put my hand on his shoulder. And that's a big deal, I'm guessing, based on 14 years of this culture, right? That's an enormous deal. You do not touch other guys. I mean, you just don't. This is where air fist bumps came from, okay? Mm. This is the air fist bump society. I put my hand on his shoulder and I prayed. And then he got out and all the way back to the prison. I was in heaven. I cried. I praised God like at the top of my voice because I realized, John, in that moment that God could use me, that, Mm. that I still actually could make an impact on other people. And that it wasn't about me, that somehow I would be able to be what I was here to be. That in that moment, just maybe, I had actually handed to him the Holy Spirit. And I began to pray that when he got to where he was going, that somebody else would be teed up and ready to help him, that God would just be ahead of him. I began to visualize his family and all that was possible there. And I prayed like a maniac. And that became my covert operation, if you will, for about another six months. I did not 
tell anybody about it. <laughs> the only people who knew was the guys that were checking out. And I was determined that before I had a trip, I would pray, God, if you can use me in some way on this trip, then help me to be your mouthpiece. And I would say 60 to 70% of the guys that I delivered to those bus stations, train stations to go home, I had the privilege of praying with. I'm not saying that to like somehow I'm some kind of genius because I don't even think I prayed anything that mattered. All I knew was that I was laying hands on them and sending them off with God's presence. And I felt like suddenly I was on a mission. I was the Apostle Paul. I was all the guys that I'd been more or less jealous of who actually had been called and, and commissioned to do God's work. And so when I realized that, that was the gear shift for me. I, I realized that within another month that I had never known peace in my life. I'd mm. never known peace until I was in prison because suddenly I'd found the ability to take the time because believe me, time's all you've got. It's a horrifying situation when you've done everything you can imagine doing for the day and it's not even 8 o'clock in the morning yet because I was a guy who slept like four hours a day and was just on the go nonstop. Now I'm in a situation where you're staring at the clock, right? I found how I could walk into God's presence and imagine my way into the throne room and look around and see what was happening and see God's expression toward the day. And there were times I thought, God's on the warpath today. What is going on? There's something happening. And I would find myself praying for my family and believing and knowing that I was a part of that. And I realized that I'd never known that before. I'd never found that. And when I got home, I'm telling you, I've been jealous ever since because I do not want to give that up, John. I don't want to give that up. And yet I never would have found it if it had not been for my brokenness. So when you say give it up, what's it? The peace. Mm. The awareness. The altered beliefs. Mm -hmm. You know, the beliefs that no longer depended on my performance, but that placed the responsibility even for my life into the hands of God. And I would have always said that's like a cop-out, you know, because we do – have performance that we're responsible for. We do have to suck it up sometimes and do hard things. We do. But for me to be able to find myself in a situation that I had zero control and to be at peace, because trust me, behind the scenes, there was still a lot going on. Even at home, there were a lot of things going on, a lot of financial things, a lot of legal issues because of things I couldn't care for. And I was completely out of pocket. I mean, there was abundance of stress. And yet in that time, I realized that God was really the source, not me. So when you stepped out of prison back into this giant hairball, right? <laughs> <laughs> How did you show up in that time? Like what had shifted versus maybe looking at yourself, Greg, at the peak of your business before all the legal trouble started? The thing I hadn't anticipated was the desire to default back to identity. Mm -hmm. You know, my identity was the struggle always has been the struggle. Mm. 
I was alluded to this earlier. I, within about a month of the time I got home, I was invited to a charity event where I had been heavily involved and had been a donor and on and on. And they invited me and I showed up with my wife and was introduced to a new official actually in the church who was a district level official. And somebody said, oh, Greg, you've never met John, Dr. John. I won't give his name. You never met him. I said, no, I haven't. And we exchanged, you know, greetings. And he asked that question that all men ask, right? He said, so Greg, tell me, what do you do? It was like slow motion, John. It was like, it was like I could see my entire life flashing before my eyes. And I wanted to just say to him all the things I used to say, right? I wanted to tell him who I am, the business owner that I am, you know, that I wanted to give him this glimpse of my superpowers, right? Right, And right. instead, I just blurted out to the horror of my wife and his wife and everybody in earshot. I blurted this out. I said, well, I just got home from prison and I'm pretty much living off my wife. <laughs> That's what I said. <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, That's fascinating. When can we get together and have coffee? I want to talk about your experience. And I realized at that moment that if I were going to be used like I had been in prison to at least speak into people's lives. I can't control the outcomes, but if I were going to be able to do that, that it was going to be through my vulnerability and my willingness to just be who I am today and let God take care of the rest. I had to let go of that old identity. I did discover, of course, that I still have all the same skills. I still have all the same abilities. I still have the ability to be successful and I have the ability to make money and I have all of those things still in my gifts. But until I'm able to retool my identity as somebody who's broken mm. and pursuing breakthrough, then I really can't help anybody else. And that was a pivotal, another pivotal moment for me. I'll never forget it. When I decided I'm not going back, I'm going forward. I'm going to claim this identity and I'm going to see what God can do with that identity. It's been fascinating. I think identity is such a key. And I think there's so many of us that are chained to a false identity that's holding us back from what Jesus says in John 10.10, 10, that he came to give us life and so that we may live it to the full. And I talked to so many leaders, honestly, whether they're Christians or not, and they use that phrase almost identically you know, one of the things they want to talk to me about as a coach or working with them or just in general is they're not living life fully alive. They don't know how to get there. They don't know what it would even look like. They just know that they don't have it. And I think a huge part of that is identity. And, you know, that's what I'm hearing from your whole story is the shift, but also being in a place of making a choice, Greg, that I admire that you were going to trust God in every situation, like Albert said to you, right? God has you right where you want it. Like, you can totally reject that, or you could lay down on your bed and go, you know, what if there's some truth in that, right? Because every day we have a choice on what we're going to do and think and, and moving through some adversity in my life. I got to tell you, I saw people 
take the steps that led them toward from brokenness to catastrophic brokenness. I saw where they went. I saw what happened in their lives. And I got to tell you, it scared me as I got close to some of these people. And one of the things that kept me moving toward my own breakthrough, and sometimes it was just a teeny little, the teeniest little ember, like at a fire, you know, on a summer night. And that little red ember kind of goes up into the air, that little glimmer of hope, right? That tomorrow could be better than today. That next week could be better than today because I have to trust in God's promises and his faithfulness. And now your website for, I know people are going to want to learn more about what you're doing, read your books. It's morethanbreakthrough.com. Are there other places that people can get in touch with you, Greg? Yeah, they can uh, follow me on Facebook. Uh, Breakthrough Leadership is our platform on Facebook or my name, Greg Yates. Y-A-T-E-S? Yes, Y-A-T-E-S, correct. And you know, one thing I can't, this brought to my mind, so I got to say it. You talked about this idea of business people who find themselves in that road. You know, long before I faced this brokenness, I had a fleeting prayer that kept coming back to me. Mm. I kept praying it over and over, desperately praying it, not out loud, not where anybody would know, but I kept praying, God, is it still possible for me to be who you created me to be? Because I want to be that. I knew that abundant life didn't exist for me. Even though I had a lot of money, I had a lot of influence, if you will. I had authority. I was not satisfied at all. I was Mm -hmm. desperately seeking satisfaction around the next corner. And I was praying, God, help me to be who you created me to be. And I believe God answered that prayer Mm -hmm. through brokenness. And that's what I talk about on my platform, on the website. I do have a piece that I call Yates in Your Face, which is kind of me ranting. I tend to rant, John. I tend to not be soft and silent and cozy about some of these topics because I know the lies that we buy into as business leaders. And I think it's important that we just get in each other's space a little bit, talk about those hard issues. I also have a mastermind that I do with John Nimmo, my buddy that I told you I, he wouldn't give up on me. Yeah, that's awesome. We have a mastermind that we do and it's really pretty exclusive with business guys who absolutely want to have those hard conversations. We found it to be tremendously beneficial for all of us. Thank you for everything you shared. I'd love for you to close because I think it just encapsulates this. You know, before we started, what your favorite Bible verse was, it was 2 Corinthians twelve nine. Would you be willing to kind of share that with everybody? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. You know, weakness was like an intolerable idea for me for mm-hmm. decades. You know, I've always been physically strong. I've always uh, been a person who was ready to draw the sword and go into battle. And when you find yourself completely broken and a scripture like this jumps into your life, I could just never escape this. It took me through broken times, but it also continues to be my reminder. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my powers made perfect in weakness I really wanted God's power to be made perfect in my strength, right? I Great. That's I, a great point, right? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my. Strangely enough, John, I had to understand that I was the guy who would have felt better if somehow I deserved God's grace. You know, I mean, yeah, Christ dying for me, that's cool, but I want to deserve it. And when you realize what blasphemy that is, I mean, what heresy that is to say 
that I think I should be able to deserve in my strength. It's just mind boggling. And when I yeah, that's such a place of arrogance. Oh, it's total arrogance, total idolatry. It's idolatry for me, and therefore I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's where I found myself. All the things we've talked about. That's where I found myself. That I said, okay. I'm going to boast about my brokenness because that's where Christ's power is at work in me. And every opportunity I have to speak about it, to share it, to rant about it, to write about it, I'm going to do that because I want people to hear above the noise, above the head trash that goes on in our lives that's drowning out the truth about our identity. Greg, that was awesome. I love how we ended on this, and I hope people go back and listen to this. You know, if you're listening to this here, you made it to the end, I'll guarantee you, if it's not yourself, (laughs) you know somebody in your life, even if you suspect, right, that they are struggling, they're approaching burnout, they're just lonely, they're starting to say some things just about their spouse, they're like, wow, they're just getting off track. Uh, Just take this and please... Say, hey, you know what? There's something I want you to listen to. I want you to hear this guy, Greg, and hear what he went through and what he shared. And I think it would be really helpful to you. That's all you have to say. You know what? You might change the entire trajectory of somebody's life by letting them learn from the journey that Greg has gone through. So, Greg, thank you for coming on and sharing this. It was just, uh, man, it was awesome. I really appreciate you being so just real and and raw with what you've gone through, brother. I know you are just helping so many men and women out there. Thank you, John. I really appreciate it. I hope that people, as they read my book, will respond like so many have and say, Greg, I thought this was about you, and I found out it was about me. I Mm. really appreciate the opportunity to share. God bless your ministry. Yeah, thank you, brother. 